Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Yo, happy Monday. Happy MLK Day, Kansas City. Can you hear that? It's a plane in the background. Getting some renovations done at the new spots. So I've been sent out to the car. I apologize for the acoustics. They're not great. So I'm not going to have that cheat code today. That's okay. Hey, happy MLK Day, my friends. On the show today, we honor the late, the great, the radical Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., civil rights icon, humanitarian, socialist, theologian, political scientist, hero, that part, hero. And on the show today, we're going to celebrate the radical side of MLK, the side that nobody wants to talk about, the side that power was so afraid of, the side that got him killed. So we've got some clips today for you, some never-before-heard audio on MLK's thoughts on reparations. Spoiler alert, he was a fan. You know, it's wild to me hearing and preparing myself for all the platitudes and posts from these politicians, Republicans, conservatives, reactionaries, who are going to say the same I have a dream quote that they posted last year, knowing good and goddamn well that if MLK was alive in 23, they call him woke, they take away his rights. Hell, they're banning books written on him as we speak. So like I said, today we celebrate the radical son, the progressive patriot, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who my great-grandmother got a chance to see one time, I know for a fact, over at St. Stephen's Baptist Church, 1957, I believe. Also on the show, we've got the Beyond Vietnam speech. Like I said, MLK was a socialist, a radical democratic socialist, and he made that more and more well-known towards the end of his life. And by the time we get to the Beyond Vietnam speech, gave it in Riverside in Harlem, 1967. By that time, he had reached the point of no return. He just could no longer tolerate the feeling of being the strange liberator. Here we are in Vietnam, sending black folks, poor folks, people of color, to fight on the side of the colonizers? What the f***? President Johnson, LBJ, the man partially responsible for my own radical awakening. My eighth grade book reports on the Great Society and the War on Poverty changed my life. But that same guy, LBJ, after the Riverside speech, what is that god nigger preacher done to me? President Johnson fumed in the Oval Office when he heard of the content of King's Riverside Address. It's a quote. This next part comes from Jacobin, this article they released for MLK Day. It says the president wasn't the only one to see King's speech as outrageous. King's staff had warned that speaking out would cause donations from northern liberals to decline. Opinion polls conducted just prior to King's death one year later indicated that 72% of white people and 55% of black people disapproved of his opposition to Vietnam. And this is what they opposed, by the way. This is what he talked about. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. Not a lie detected, if you ask me. And for that, they hated him. In the Jacobin piece, it goes on to say that Dr. King cried a lot that last year. And then they murdered him, April 4th, 1968. So we're going to play that entire Beyond Vietnam speech. We've got the breaking news bulletin on the death of MLK in there as well. An original audio from Nina Simone taken just a few days after the assassination, dedicated 
to MLK. And we kick it off with a piece from Mehdi Hassan from MSNBC that's going to help explain, again, this radical progressive patriot who had all reason to sink into the cynicism of it all, but instead he pushed the promise of our collective freedom, the power through our collective strength. That is who we celebrate today and every day. My name's Hartzell. On this good day to be a Kansas Cityan because of the heroes before who've laid out a playbook, a pathway for us to follow, a baton for us to pick up, not pass to somebody else, but to pick up because it's our turn, our leg of the race. And I told you, I used to coach track and my coach used to tell me, you win the curve, you win the race. So let's go win that race, y'all. It's your KC Morning Show. Monday is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a federal holiday that this country has marked since 1986. It sadly took nearly two decades after his death for Congress to agree to it. And even then, plenty of prominent Republicans at the time, like the late Senator John McCain and the current GOP Senator Chuck Grassley, voted against it. Still, today, the Republican Party, like Americans as a whole, claims to love MLK and what he stands for, at least who they think he is, and what they think he stands for. For most Republicans, Dr. King is just a guy who said to forget about skin color. They basically know just one quote of his out of context, and they repeat it ad nauseum. We embrace the noble vision of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and believe that people should not be judged based on the color of their skin, but the content of their character. You think about what MLK uh, stood for. He said he didn't want people judged on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. Where he said, most critically, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. We do not seek to judge people by the color of their skin, but rather the content of their character. But it isn't just Republicans who don't quite get Dr. King, who want to, for want of a better word, whitewash MLK. It's the American public, American society as a whole. This country has spent decades engaging in what Dr. Cornell West calls the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King, the sanitizing and domesticating of Dr. King, to quote Dr. West. Over Christmas, I had family visiting me from California, so I took them to the MLK Memorial in D.C., a stunningly beautiful and poignant tribute to the late civil rights leader. We took photos by the legendary MLK quotes up on the walls there. You know the ones. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. But you know what was missing at that memorial? The quotes from the late Dr. King that show what a radical he was. For example, what he said in his Beyond Vietnam speech at the Riverside Church in New York in April 1967, a year before his death. And I quote, I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. That quote, weirdly, didn't make it onto any of the walls at his memorial. By the way, can you imagine if AOC or Ilhan Omar said that today, that the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today was the American government. 
It wouldn't just be Republicans losing their minds. It'd be their fellow Democrats. It'd be the liberal media, too, and many ordinary patriotic Americans. But Dr. King said it because Dr. King wasn't just passionately anti-racism. He was proudly anti-war. He was ferociously anti-poverty. For Dr. King, as he pointed out in that Riverside speech, what needed to be conquered were the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism. Today, we remember Dr. King's struggle against racism. We try often in his name to continue his struggle against racism. The George Floyd protests, the attempts to restrain our trigger-happy police departments and tackle the racial inequality baked into America from the campus to the C-suite to Congress. But how about the struggle against militarism with our bloated Pentagon defense budget and our endless wars abroad, which have left so many people dead? How about the struggle against extreme materialism? that has left millions in poverty and destitution while allowing the creation of billionaires who exploit workers and dodge taxes. You know, the New York Times, the liberal New York Times, back then, three days after the Riverside speech and Dr. King's talk of the giant triplets and American violence, the Times slammed him in an editorial headlined Dr. King's error. They accused him of wrongly fusing two public problems, racism and war, that are distinct and separate. But Dr. King didn't back down. Racism, war, poverty, they were all interconnected for him. Racial justice had to go hand in hand with economic justice. What good is having the right to sit at a lunch counter if you can't afford to buy a hamburger, he famously declared. And remember, in March 1968, MLK was assassinated in Memphis, and he was in Memphis to support sanitation workers who were on strike for better pay and conditions. In fact, in 1967, less than a year before his death, Dr. King spoke with NBC News at his Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, about what the pastor called the new phase of the struggle for genuine equality, his poor people's campaign. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. And here's something else that they don't tell you about Dr. King. He wasn't a capitalist. He was a socialist. Huh? Yeah. The S word that gives everyone from Donald Trump to Nancy Pelosi the jitters. And yet Martin Luther King Jr. was a socialist. As a 23-year-old writing to his then-girlfriend, Coretta, in 1952, MLK said, I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic, and that capitalism has outlived its usefulness. Over a decade later, just a couple of years before he died, Dr. King said that something is wrong with capitalism and that there must be a better distribution of wealth. Maybe, he said, America must move toward a democratic socialism. You'll be surprised to hear that that quote isn't on the wall at his D.C. memorial either and isn't cited by Republican or Democratic politicians today. So on this MLK date, let's be honest with ourselves and with his legacy. Let's remember Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as the man, as the proud, radical, and socialist he actually was, not as the man we conveniently want him or imagine him to be.
of the Spirit, which stands in glaring contrast to our scientific and technological abundance. The problem is, my friends, that we have learned to fly the air like birds and we have learned to swim the seas like fish and yet we haven't learned to walk the earth like brothers and sisters. Racial injustice is still the black man's burden and the white man's shame. So wherever we live in America, we have to face the fact honestly that racial discrimination is present. So don't get complacent. Certainly we've made some strides. We've made some progress here and there. But it hadn't been enough. It hadn't been fast enough. And although we've come a long, long way, we still have a long, long way to go. In 1863, the Negro was freed from the bondage of physical slavery through the Emancipation Proclamation signed by Abraham Lincoln. But the Negro was not given any land make that freedom meaningful. And you know it was something like having a man in jail for years and years and then you suddenly discover that this man is innocent. And go to him and say, now you are free. That man been unjustly jailed for 35 or 40 years and you just put him out of jail saying, now you are free. Don't give him any bus fare to get to town. No money to buy any clothes. No money to get something to eat. This is what happens to the black man in this country. I can't limit my concern to the middle class. I can't limit my concern to this particular situation where a Negro comes and says, I'm the first this, I, I, I'm just tired of the first Negro. I want some seconds and some thirds and some fourths. The civil rights movement has to address itself to this, and the nation has to do it. You see, we are such a rich nation and a fluent nation, and we often don't see the poor. There are some, you see, most white people can't see the poor because they, they live in the suburbs. And then they get in town in these big cities on expressways. They don't know nothing about what's. They've never been there. They don't know anything about Huff in Cleveland or the west side or the south side of Chicago or Harlem. They've never seen it. And they allow the poor to become invisible. And a lot of Negroes, you know, who have somehow sailed or floated out of the backwaters or the muddy waters and they've kind of been able to ease out into the 
fresh flowing waters of the main stream have forgotten the stench of the backwater. And I can hear a voice saying that wasn't enough. I was hungry and you fed me not. I was naked and you clothed me not. I needed shelter and you didn't give it to me. I needed a drink of water. And in a while, that's three-fourths water, you made me pay a water bill. That creed, a creed at the core of every American whose story is not yet written. Yes, we can. The Casey Morning Show. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here tonight and how very delighted I am to see you expressing your concern about the issues that will be discussed tonight by turning out in such large numbers. I also want to say that I consider it a great honor to share this program with Dr. Bennett, Dr. Cominger, and Rabbi Heschel, some of the distinguished leaders and personalities of our nation. And of course, it's always good to come back to Riverside Church. Over the last eight years, I have had the privilege of preaching here almost every year in that period. It is always a rich and rewarding experience to come to this great church and this great culture. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I am in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord when I read its opening line. A time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one, <clears throat> even when pressed by the demands of inner truth. Men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought 
within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. And moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexing as they often do, in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. But we must move on. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often the vocation of agony. But we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision. But we must speak. And we must rejoice as well for surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm descent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movements and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance. For we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. At the heart of their concerns, this query has often loomed in large and loud. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I am nevertheless greatly saddened. For such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstanding, I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely, why I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, a church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. I come to this platform tonight to make a passionate plea to my beloved nation. This speech is not addressed to Hanoi or to the National Liberation Front. It is not addressed to China or to Russia. Nor is it an attempt to overlook the ambiguity of the total situation and the need for a collective solution to the tragedy of Vietnam. Neither is it an attempt to make North Vietnam or the National Liberation Front paragons of virtue, not to overlook the role they must play 
and the successful resolution of the problem. While they both may have justifiable reasons to be suspicious of the good faith of the United States, life and history give eloquent testimony to the fact that conflicts are never resolved without trustful give and take on both sides. Tonight, however, I wish not to speak with Hanoi and the National Liberation Front, but rather to my fellow Americans. Since I am a preacher by calling, I suppose it is not surprising that I have seven major reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. That is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction to. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place and it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia which they had not found in southwest Georgia and East Holland. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel iron watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. So we watched them in brutal solidarity burning the huts of a poor village, but we realized that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, for it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that 
social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problem, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghetto without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. For those who ask the question, are you a civil rights leader? And thereby mean to exclude me from the movement for peace. I have this further answer. In 1957, when a group of us formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, we chose as our motto to save the soul of America. We were convinced that we could not limit our vision to certain rights for black people, but instead affirmed the conviction that America would never be free or saved from itself until the descendants of its slaves were loosed completely from the shackles they still wear. In a way, we were agreeing with Langston Hughes, that black bar of Harlem, who had written earlier, oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. Now it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes totally plausible, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. It can never be saved so long as it destroys the deepest hopes of men the world over. So it is that those of us who are yet determined that America will be allowed, are led down the path of protest and dissent, working for the health of our land. As if the weight of such a commitment to the life and health of America were not enough, another burden of responsibility was placed upon me in 1954, and I cannot forget that the Nobel Peace Prize was also a commission, a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the Brotherhood of Man. This is a calling that takes me beyond national allegiances. But even if it were not present, I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I'm speaking against Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men, for communists and capitalists, for their children and ours, for black and for white, for revolutionary and conservative. And they have forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully 
that he died for them. What then can I say to the Viet Cong, or to Castro, or to Mao, as a faithful minister of this one? And I threaten them with death, or must I not share with them my life? Finally, as I try to explain to you and for myself the road that leads from Montgomery to this place, I would have offered all that was most valid if I simply said that I must be true to my conviction, that I share with all men the calling to be a son of the living God. Beyond the calling of race, a nation, a creed, is this vocation of sonship and brotherhood. Because I believe that the Father is deeply concerned, especially for his suffering and helpless and outcast children, I come tonight to speak for them. This I believe to be the privilege and the burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties, which are broader and deeper than nationalism, and which go beyond our nation's self-defined goals and positions. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for the victims of our nation, for those it calls enemy. For no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brothers. And as I ponder the madness of Vietnam, and such within myself for ways to understand and respond in compassion. My mind goes constantly to the people of that peninsula. I speak now not of the soldiers of each side, not of the ideologies of the Liberation Front, not of the hunting inside gone, but simply of the people who have been living under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them too, because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution there until some attempt is made to know them and hear that broken cry. They must see Americans as strange liberators, Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1954, uh, in 1945, brother, after a combined French and Japanese occupation, and before the Communist Revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh, even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom. We refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of a former colony. Our government felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence. We again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. That tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination, and a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For the peasants, this new government meant real land reform, one of the most important needs in their lives. 
nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war cost. Even before the French were defeated at DNB and food, they began to despair of their reckless action, but we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had Soon we would be paying almost the full cost of this tragic attempt at recolonization. After the French were defeated, it looked as if independence and land reform would come again through the Geneva Agreement. Then instead there came the United States, determined that whole should not unify the temporarily divided nation. The peasants watched again as we supported one of the most vicious modern dictators, our chosen man, Premier Diem. The peasants watched and cringed as Diem ruthlessly rooted out all opposition, supported their extortionist landlords, and refused even to discuss reunification with the North. The peasants watched as all of this was presided over by United States influence, and then by increasing numbers of United States troops who came to help quell the insurgency that Diem's methods had aroused. Diem was overthrown, they may have been happy, but the long line of military dictators seemed to offer no real change especially in terms of their need for land and peace. The only change came from America, as we increased our troop commitments in support of governments which were singularly corrupt, inept, and without popular support. All the while, the people read our leaflets and received irregular promises of peace and democracy and land reform. Now they languish under our bombs and consider us not their fellow Vietnamese, the real enemy. They move sadly and apathetically as we herd them off the land of their fathers, in the concentration camps where minimal social needs were rarely met. They know they must move on or be destroyed by our bombs. So they go primarily women and children and babies. They watch as we poison their water. As we kill a million acres of their crops, they must weep as the bulldozers roar through their areas, preparing to destroy the precious trees. They wander into the hospitals with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one Viet Cong inflicted injury. So far, we may have killed a million of them, mostly children. They wander into the towns and see thousands of the children, homeless, without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children degraded by our soldiers as they beg for food. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers, soliciting for their mothers. What do the peasants think if we allow ourselves with the landlords 
And as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning land reform, what do they think is we test out our latest weapons on them, just as the Germans tested out new medicine and new tortures in the concentration camps of Europe, where the roots of the independent Vietnam we claim to be built. Is it among these voiceless ones we have destroyed that two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crops. We have cooperated in crushing, in the crushing of the nation's only non-communist revolutionary political force, the unified Buddhist church. We have supported the enemies of the peasants of Saigon. We have corrupted their women and children and killed their men. Now that is little left to build on same fitness. Soon the only solid, solid physical foundations remaining will be found at our military bases and in the concrete of the concentration camps we call fortified hamlets. Peasants may well wonder if we plan to build our new Vietnam on such grounds as these. If we blame them for such thoughts, we must speak for them and raise the questions they cannot raise. These two are brothers. Perhaps a more difficult but no less necessary task is to speak for those who have been designated as our enemies. What of the National Liberation Front? That strangely anonymous group we call V.C. of Communists. What must they think of the United States of America? And they realize that we permitted the repression and cruelty of DM, which helped to bring them into being as a resistance group in the South. What do they think of our condoning the violence, which led to their own taking up of arms? How can they believe in our integrity when now we speak of aggression from the North, as if there were nothing more essential to the war? How can they trust us when now we charge them with violence after the murderous reign of DM? charge them with violence while we pour every new weapon of death into their land. Surely we must understand their feelings, even if we do not condone their actions. Surely we must see that the men we supported pressed them to their violence. Surely we must see that our own computerized plans of destruction simply dwarf their greatest acts. How do they judge us when our officials know that their membership is less than 25% communist and yet insist on giving them the blanket name? What must they be thinking when they know that we are aware of their control of major sections of Vietnam and yet we appear ready to allow national elections in which this highly organized political parallel government will not have a part? They ask how we can speak of free elections when the Saigon press is censored and controlled by the military hunter. And they're surely right to wonder what kind of new government we plan to help form without them. The only party in real touch with the peasants. 
They question our political goals and they deny the reality of a peace settlement from which they will be excluded. Their questions are frighteningly relevant. Is our nation planning to build on political myth again, then show it up from the power of new violence? Here is a true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. Far from his view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition. If we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. So too with Hanoi, in the north where our bombs now pummel the land, and our minds endanger the waterways, we are met by deep but understandable mistrust. To speak for them is to explain this lack of confidence in Western words, and especially their distrust of American intentions now. In Hanoi are the men who led the nation to independence against the Japanese and the French, the men who sought membership in the French Commonwealth and were betrayed by the weakness of Paris and the willfulness of the colonial armies. It was they who led a second struggle against French domination at tremendous cost and then were persuaded to give up the land they controlled between the 13th and 17th parallel as a temporary measure at Geneva. After 1954, they watched us conspire with DM to prevent elections which could have surely brought Ho Chi Minh to power over the united Vietnam. They realized they had been betrayed again. And we asked why they do not leap to negotiate. These things must be remembered. Also, it must be clear that the leaders of Hanoi considered the presence of American troops in support of the DiEM regime to have been the initial military breach of the Geneva Agreement concerning foreign troops. And they remind us that they did not begin to send troops in large numbers and even supplies into the South until American forces had moved into the tens of and now I remember how our leaders refused to tell us the truth about the earlier North Vietnamese overtures for peace, how the president claimed that none existed when they had clearly been made. Ho Chi Minh has watched as America has spoken of peace and built up its forces. And now he has surely heard the increasing international rumors of American plans for an invasion of the North. He knows the bombing and shelling and mining, we are doing a part of traditional pre-invasion strategy. Perhaps only his sense of humor and of irony can save him when he hears the most powerful nation of the world speaking of aggression as it drops thousands of bombs on a poor, weak nation more than 800, or rather 8,000 miles away from its shores. At this point, I should make it clear that while I have tried in these last few minutes to give a voice to the voiceless in Vietnam, to understand the arguments of those who are called enemy, I am as deeply concerned about our own troops there as anything else. 
For it occurs to me that what we are submitting them to in Vietnam is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war where armies face each other and seek to destroy. We add in cynicism to the process of death, for they must know after the short period there that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved. Before long, they must know that their government has sent them into a struggle among Vietnamese. The more sophisticated surely realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and brother to the suffering poor of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak, of the, speak for the poor of America, who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home, death and corruption in Vietnam. I speak as a citizen of the world, for the world as it stands aghast at the path we have taken. I speak as one who loves America, to the leaders of our own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. This is the message of the great Buddhist leaders of Vietnam. Recently one of them wrote these words, and I quote, Each day the war goes on, the hatred increases in the heart of the Vietnamese, in the hearts of those of humanitarian instinct. The Americans are forcing even their friends into becoming their enemies. It is curious that the Americans, who calculate so carefully on the possibilities of military victory, do not realize that in the process they incur deep psychological and political defeat. The image of America will never again be the image of revolution, freedom, and democracy, but the image of violence and militarism, unquote. We continue, there will be no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions in Vietnam. We do not stop our war against the people of Vietnam immediately. The world would be left with no other alternative than to see this as some horrible, clumsy, and deadly game we have decided to play. The world now demands a maturity of America that we may not be able to achieve. It demands that we admit that we have been wrong from the beginning of our adventure in Vietnam, that we have been detrimental to the life of the Vietnamese people, the situation is one in which we must be ready to turn sharply from our present ways in order to atone for our sins and errors in Vietnam we should take the initiative in bringing a halt to this tragic war. I would like to suggest five concrete things that our government should do to begin the long and difficult process of extricating ourselves from this nightmarish conflict. Number one, end all bombing in North and South Vietnam. 
Number two, declare a unilateral ceasefire in the hope that such action will create the atmosphere for negotiation. Three, take immediate steps to prevent other battlegrounds in Southeast Asia by curtailing our military buildup in Thailand and our interference in Laos. Four, realistically accept the fact that the National Liberation Front has substantial support in South Vietnam and must thereby play a role in any meaningful negotiations and any future Vietnam government. Five, set a date that we will remove all foreign troops from Vietnam in accordance with the 1954 Geneva Agreement. Part of our ongoing...
But I wish to go on now to say something even more disturbing. The war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. And if we ignore this soberly, sobering reality, we will find ourselves organizing clergy and layman concerned committees for the next generation. They will be concerned about Guatemala and Peru. They will be concerned about Thailand and Cambodia. They will be concerned about Mozambique and South We will be marching for these and a dozen other names and attending rallies without end unless that is a significant and profound change in American life and policy. So such thoughts take us beyond Vietnam, but not beyond our calling as sons of the living God. In 1957, a sensitive American official overseas said, that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. During the past 10 years, we have seen emerge a pattern of suppression, which has now justified the presence of U.S. military advisors in Venezuela, this need to maintain social stability for our investments, accounts for the counter-revolutionary action of American forces in Guatemala, it tells why American helicopters are being used against guerrillas in Cambodia, why American napalm and Green Beret forces have already been active against rebels in Peru. It is with such activity in mind that the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us. Five years ago, he said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Increasingly by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must, rapidly begin, we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism Extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. That will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring.
sexual revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out, no, no concern for the social betterment of the countries, and say this is not just. It will look at our alignment with the landed genocide of South America and say this is not just. Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war. This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of people's nominal sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. America the richest and most powerful nation in the world can well lead the way in this revolution of values. That is nothing except a tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. There is nothing to keep us from molding a recalcitrant status quo with bruised hands until we have fashioned it into a brotherhood. This kind of positive revolution of values is our best defense against communism. War is not the Communism will never be defeated by the use of atomic bombs and nuclear weapons. Let us not join those who shout war and through their misguided passions urge the United States to relinquish its participation in the United Nations. These are days which demand wise restraint and calm reasonableness. We must not engage in a negative anti-communism, but rather in a positive thrust for democracy. Realizing that our greatest defense against communism is to take offensive action in behalf of justice. We must, with positive action, seek to remove those conditions of poverty, insecurity, and injustice, which are the fertile soil in which the seed of communism grows and develops. These are revolutionary times all over the globe. Men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression. And out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. <coughs> Shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. People who set in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. It is a sad fact 
that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, and our proneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has a revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow through on the revolutions that we initiate. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. This, this powerful commitment we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores, thereby speak the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low, yes. crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. Mm -hmm. Genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This calls for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing, embracing an unconditional love for all mankind. This often misunderstood, this often misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of man. When I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm not speaking of that force which is just emotional bosh. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate, the ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another. Yes. Love is God. Yes. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate. Now before the altar of retaliation, the oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the records of nations and individuals that pursues this self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Tonda says, love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word, unquote. We are now faced with the fact, my friends, that tomorrow 
is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now in this unfolding conundrum of life and history. That is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at flood, it ends. We may cry desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is adamant to every plea and rushes on over the bleached bones and jumble residues of numerous civilizations written the pathetic words too late, that is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. Omar Khayyam's right to move and finger rights and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. We do not act. We shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time, reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Now let us begin. Now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. This is the calling of the sons of God, and our brothers wait eagerly for our response. Shall we say the odds are too great? Shall we tell them the struggle is too hard? Will our message be that the forces of American life militate against their rival as poor men, and we send our deepest regrets? Will there be another message of longing, of hope, of solidarity with their yearnings, of commitment to their cause, whatever the cost? The choice is ours. And though we might prefer it otherwise, we must choose in this crucial moment of human history. Is that noble bard of yesterday, James Russell Lord, eloquently stated, once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide in the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side, some great cause, God's new Messiah, often eats the gloom of light, and the choice goes by forever, twixt that darkness Though the cause of evil prosper, yet this truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. And if we will only make the right choice, we will be able to transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. We will make the right choice. We will be able to transform the jangling discourse of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. We will but make the right choice. We will be able to speed up the day all over America and all over the world.
when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Direct from our newsroom in Washington, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite and Russ Hodge in Memphis, Tennessee, Dan Rather in New York, Bernard Kalb in Saigon, Marvin Kalb in Wellington, New Zealand, and Bert Quint in Quezon, South Vietnam. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Police, who have been keeping a close watch over the Nobel Peace Prize winner because of Memphis' turbulent racial situation, were on the scene almost immediately. They rushed the 39-year-old Negro leader to a hospital where he died of a bullet wound in the neck. Police said they found a high-powered hunting rifle about a block from the hotel, but it was not immediately identified as the murder weapon. Mayor Henry Loeb has reinstated the dusk-to-dawn curfew he imposed on the city last week when a march led by Dr. King erupted in violence. Governor Buford Ellington has called out 4,000 National Guardsmen. And police report that the murder has touched off sporadic acts of violence in a Negro section of the city. In a nationwide television address, President Johnson expressed the nation's shock. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. Dr. King had returned to Memphis only yesterday, determined to prove that he could lead a peaceful mass march in support of striking sanitation workers, most of whom are Negroes. Dr. King had this to say last night about the situation in Memphis. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read, of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for right. There was shock in Harlem tonight when word of Dr. King's murder reached the nation's largest Negro community. Men, women, and children poured into the streets. They appeared dazed. Many were crying. A young Negro said, Dr. King didn't really have to go back to Memphis. Maybe he wanted to prove something. We want to do a tune written for today, for this hour, for Dr. Martin Luther King. We stayed before that the whole program is dedicated to his memory. But this tune is written about him and for him. And so we had yesterday to learn it. And so we'll see.
his creed pain humiliation death he did not dread with his Bible at his side from his foes he did not hide hard to think that this great man is dead oh yeah well the murders never cease are they men or are they beasts What do they ever hope, ever hope to gain? Will my country force stand or fall? Is it too late for us all? Martin Luther King just died in vain. Cause he'd seen the mountain top. And he knew he could not stop. Always living. With the threat of death ahead Folks, you'd better Stop and think Cause we're headed for the bridge What will happen now That he is dead For equality For all people You and me Full of love and goodwill Hate was not his way He was not a violent man 
Uh, I heard that uh, well, we've heard all kinds of stories, but I heard that this was uh, his favorite song, this at the near the end of his life. Uh, last year, a year ago, maybe more longer than that now, Lorraine Hansberry left us, and she was a dear friend. And she had her favorite song, and then Langston Hughes left us, Cold Train left us, Otis Redding left us. You can go on. Do you realize how many we have lost? Then it really gets down to reality, doesn't it? Not a performance. Not microphones and all that crap. But really something else. We've lost a lot of them in the last two years. But we have remaining Monk, Miles, <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> and of course, for those that we have left, we, we, we're thankful, but we can't afford any more losses. Oh no. Oh my God. They're shooting us down one by one. Don't forget that. Because they are. Killing us one by one. Well, all I have to say is that uh, those of us who know how to protect those of us that we love, stand by them and stay close to them. And I say that if there had been a couple of more, a little closer to Dr. King, he wouldn't have gotten it. You know, really. Just a little closer to him. Stay there. Stay there. We can't afford any more losses. He had seen mountaintop And he knew he could not stop Always living with a threat Dead ahead Come on, Sam Folks, you better stop that thing Or we're almost to the brink What will happen Show.